<laughs> this is Dennis Rundy. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda, our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our subject matter, contemporary spirituality, and our guest back on the show, Mirabai Starr. She writes creative nonfiction and contemporary translation of sacred literature, especially uh, Spanish mystics, John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila. Uh, she lectures regu regularly, uh, gives retreats, and uh, I have to say, Mirabai, when I talk to anyone uh, who has an interest in contemporary spirituality, uh, you are familiar to them. They know about you and your writing, and you've inspired a lot of people, and I want to thank you for taking the time to come on back on the show with us. Oh, thanks for having me, you guys. It's really a pleasure to be with you. Mirabai, since you are the uh, only the second of our guests to be invited back on, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> uh, and, and, and the, the first wasn't Phil or, or, or me; it was uh, actually Mary Ann Williamson. So go ahead. <laughs> right. Wow. Uh, so you're in good company. Um, really, really. But one of the reasons I thought of inviting you back on uh, right now is I, I get your uh, mailings and. I know you've been um, out on the circuit a lot in in the uh, year or so since we spoke to you, and it's been a very eventful year in the in the life of uh, the world and in America. And uh, you speak in a lot of diverse contexts to different kinds of audiences with a variety of spiritual interests. And I, I would love to start by hearing. What it's been like out there? What have you noticed uh, in in the um, in the world of contemporary spirituality as you travel around? What strikes mm -hmm. you? What a what a wonderful question to start off with, and it's very much up for me because I'm I'm noticing some significant shifts in in the people that I meet, the people who are drawn to my work. Um, I'm I seem to be reaching a lot more younger people, millennials and people under 40, let's say, whereas I I would say the primary demographic, if you will, that was drawn to my work with the mystics in particular over the last 10 years or so has been middle-class, middle-aged white women. You know, mm. that would be who I would see when I would look out at the people who would gather. And now it's much uh, more weighted toward younger people, men and women, and everything in between. Um, and I and I seriously mean that everyone on the gender spectrum, mm -hmm. the, that fluid spectrum, and people, fewer people who are kind of recovering from the religion of their of their childhood and youth. You know, the the refugees from the Catholic Church or or any other religion evangelical Christians who would uh, sometimes come to me recovering from the woundedness they felt was inflicted upon them. And now the people that I, that I seem to be gathering around me are much more like me in the sense that this whole so-called interspiritual approach is just natural to them. It's mm. not a movement. It's not a religion in, in and of itself. It's just a kind of natural response to recognizing the presence of the sacred everywhere in all spiritual traditions. And also there's a much less of a distinction that people are making between 
action and contemplation mm. it, that is between cultivating the inner life and you know offering the fruits of that to the world it's they're completely intertwined for a lot of the people that i'm finding myself um connecting to great along those lines amir by uh I, i've encountered a lot of people as has phil and it's come up in other uh, interviews we've had that uh you know, usually uh, we often think of people as either being spiritual and spiritually motivated or political and politically motivated or materialistic and materialistically motivated. Right. But, uh, how, how, what are your thoughts about people who uh, really feel a deep calling to uh, develop their inner life, to be spiritual, and uh, at the same time feeling a responsibility to the rest of the world and may uh, demonstrate that responsibility by uh, becoming politically active. Uh, do you think that they're mutually exclusive or that one naturally flows into the other? Yeah, definitely the latter, Dennis. I mean, it's like, how could you not respond to the cries of the world? You know, when you tune into your heart and recognize that your heart is interconnected with all of the other hearts in, in the world that we that we create this spiritual um, web of interbeing, then any time there is suffering anywhere, we feel it and we and we naturally respond. the The separation of politics from from spirituality. I mean, I really believe in the separation of church and state. <laughs> That's a whole different matter. Mm-hmm. But but the the spiritual response of getting politically engaged is just a natural outflowing to me of compassion. You know, the compassion that fills us when we look upon the, the suffering in this world, it would, it would be monstrous to not respond. It would be unspiritual (laughs) to say the least in my mind. If I could follow up on that, Uh, I've heard people say that, yes, uh, I, I practice meditation. I devote a lot of my day to, spiritual practice. And if I see hungry people, I should feed them and I should be motivated and I am motivated to do that. But actual politics, voting for people, getting involved on that level is, uh, is not, is not uh, uh, what a spiritual person does. I, I don't agree with that, but I hear that a lot. And I, I wanted oh, your thoughts okay, on that. So it's a di- you're talking about the difference between social action, say, and actual political engagement on on policy level and voting Mm -hmm. and right. Okay. That's, that's a really good distinction. And I hadn't thought about it so clearly before, but my, my response is that right now, of course, every age people have considered to be uh, a a crisis, a time of crisis and impending disaster, Mm -hmm. I'm sure. But Right now, I'm just going to squarely place myself in this particular catastrophe that I feel is unfolding on the world stage. Um, And I feel like we cannot afford not to get involved. I mean, my hesitation about politics has always been intellectual. I don't understand politics very well. I I really, I can read theology all day long. I could... um, uncover sacred scriptures from any tradition and it's natural to me. I understand it. But when it comes to the political arena, I'm completely baffled and I am making an extra effort right now to understand and activate uh, because I feel like the very well-being of the planet herself is on the line. And I, and so I'm encouraging other people to do that too. And I'm finding that 
doing things like calling my congressman is not nearly as daunting as I thought it was. Mm. There's so much organizing going on and people are making it super easy for us, for those of us who have maybe been less engaged to actually activate right now um, in a political way. There are phone numbers, there are scripts, there you know, are, are all kinds of Facebook messages and emails that make it almost effortless to step up as citizens of this democracy and express our spiritual convictions in that way. Well, and according to uh, certain Republicans, you can get paid for demonstrating. <laughs> <laughs> There's a job for us. There's, there's, there's a career in it. Yes, in case we lose our, our current job. Uh, Mirabai, um, I'm, I'm curious about, uh, in this context, um, you said uh, more and more younger people are showing up at the events you do, um, and that um, they see no um, conflict between their inner life and their uh, social uh, concerns and activism. What um, kind of forms are they taking? What directions is that uh, drive uh, moving in, 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 in the millennial group? Well, a lot of it, there, there are kind of two expressions of that impulse that I'm seeing. The primary one, I would say, is toward environmental activism, mm -hmm. which often involves education. So these young people are educating themselves fast and furiously and and then educate, committing themselves to educating others, including people much older than they than they are. So I'm seeing a lot of of direct engagement with environmental issues and in, even to the point of having to teach themselves the science so that they can, intelligently uh, respond to what is needed. So that's that's the main thing. But secondarily, what I'm noticing is that there is this um, desire for community. It's sort mm. of like what was happening in the 60s and 70s. You know, my parents left Long Island, New York, when I was 11 years old, which was 1972, to kind of do the whole back to the land movement as we've spoken about before, you know, on this very podcast. And a lot of that involved communal living, finding people who were also seeking alternative lifestyles and people who were wanting to engage their, their highest ideals of what society could be, of what the human family was capable of. And I'm seeing that same kind of surge of interest in connecting and and living an alternative lifestyle. People mm. are interested in the gift economy now. A lot of these younger people mm. would love to see us do away with money, the World Bank, and actually just gift each other. And they're trying to raise their own food and raise their children together. All the things my parents were trying to do, but much more intelligently and with fewer drugs. That's a good uh, launching point for my next question. And that is uh, one of the people that you, you're close to, I understand, and has been a, a great influence on you, is somebody who went from the drug culture to the, uh, to the spiritual world, although it was always a spiritual quest for him, and that is Ram Dass. And, right. uh, and he has inspired many people. Uh, not long ago, I went into a bookstore, and I saw Be Here Now on the shelf. 
I picked it up and I stood there for two hours going through the whole thing. And, oh. and uh, it was getting really, a contact tie. Yeah, from one, of the, yeah, one of the last <laughs> things he wrote about was forming communities. He was way ahead of his time, uh, no doubt. And uh, so I'd like you to just uh, say a few words about uh, his inspiration upon you and, and, and anything else you'd like to say about him and your relationship with him. Oh, I'd be, I'd be honored. That's, that's also very much up for me right now because Ramdas has decided he's in his mid eighties now. And of course he had a stroke 20 years ago, mm-hmm. which really impacted him. And, um, and so those two things, you know, the effects of the stroke plus just his age are beginning to really take a toll now more than ever. And so he is actively engaged in thinking about his legacy and the people around him, many of whom were with him in India with Neem Karoli Baba in the, in the 60s and 70s, are really trying to help him do that. So Ramdas decided that it was time to begin a, a series of legacy immersion retreats. He does a retreat every year in Maui, twice a year in Maui where he lives. He can no longer travel. Um, that it's called opening your heart in paradise and lots of people come and it's a wonderful event and there's music, there's kirtan with, with Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg comes, there are a lot of wonderful people come and it's kind of a big spiritual fiesta. But Ramdas has been wanting to have a more intensive kind of gathering where people go deep into some very particular teachings. And so his team has put together these teachings actually for for a course for sounds true and and identified eight modules i can't remember what they all are right now off the top of my head but i remember some of them and and so ramdas has asked that the, we do these legacy retreats we're doing them in ojai actually california a couple of times a year and we just had the first one last week or the week before and ramdas asked me to be the first dharma teacher for these legacy immersion retreats. And it was such a a joy and an honor to step up in that way. And Ramdas Skyped in and in the mornings, and then I did sort of reflections on his teachings and took questions on his behalf. (laughs) And it was just, so what's my influence is that, you know, I've been with Ramdas since I was 14 years old. And so Truly, his voice is so um, integrated in my consciousness that when I teach, and I've been teaching in this way for, I don't know, 15 years or so, I can't even tell what comes from me and what is his voice in my head, if you, if you will. So I told him that a few years ago, I don't know, maybe three years ago when I was with him in Maui visiting, you know, I told him about how I, I can't separate my own concepts and ideas and teachings from his and he just he just loved hearing that and he said yes you will be my first teacher Mm. and here we are three years later and and it's coming to be so it's a beautiful full circle in my life and and he's not asking me to regurgitate his teachings by the way at all he's not interested in that um and i think that's why he asked me because he knew that that that's not what i would do he wants me to weave in these interspiritual teachings, the mystics of all traditions, mm-hmm. and all of that, and I am. How interesting. Uh, let's take that a step further. Now, in, um, 
you could say, I don't know if he would, but you could say that Ram Das was a Dharma heir uh, of Neem Karoli Baba. Um, so in a sense, there's a kind of, would you see it as a lineage? Uh, do you feel a connection to Neem Karoli? Uh, I, I know you do, but I, what, how, do you, how is it that you feel that? And Because uh, you, I don't believe, ever uh, went to India when Neem Karoli was alive. Right, because I was so young. I was 13 right. when he when he died or left his body, as they say in Hinduism. Well, you know, the terminology is is um, tricky. Dharma heir is, as you know, a Buddhist term. Yeah, yeah. And, and Ramdas uh, and Neem Karoli Baba coming much more from the Hindu, um, the Hindu tradition. But also Neem Karoli Baba, who is very much my my kind of root uh, guru. I, He's he's my guy and always has been since I was thirteen. Um, he's my connection. He's my my I don't know my s sort of uh, landing place spiritually, and always has been. But he himself was quite a uh, badmash, as they say in Hindi, uh, a kind of a rascal yeah. spiritual teacher, and he was iconoclastic. He didn't give teachings. He didn't give methods. He didn't even teach meditation. I mean, right. nothing. It was it was all spontaneous, very almost Zen-like, minus the zazen. <laughs> um, in the very much in the moment, and he was unpredictable. And the people he gathered around him were all sort of wild, wild children who grew up to be wild adults, frankly. And <laughs> and so the Neem Karoli Baba satsang or com spiritual community is very much um, made up of people who don't have patience for a lot of dogma or authoritarian structures. And so the very notion of, of lineage and dharma um, heirs is kind of, it doesn't belong in the Neem Karoli Baba mm lineage but i mean um family <laughs> but there is there is something like lineage going on absolutely right. i mean ramdas very much has been a carrier of neem karoli baba or we call him maharaji's maharaji's teachings and love in the world you know spread mm -hmm. to millions and so for me Stepping up in this way now, even in the in this sort of humble, small scale way that I am, as a Dharma teacher, um, for Ramdas is it feels deeply meaningful mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to me, and I feel like a Dharma heir, even if that's not what I'm being called. I take it, I take it seriously, not solemnly, but seriously, and I see that the way that I'm carrying this lineage is different than the way Ramdas did. Right. And that's what he wants. You know, I'm mm -hmm. a woman for one thing, and I'm mm -hmm. doing it in a very feminine way, mm -hmm. much more collaborative, much more relational, much more um, about beauty and poetry and emotion. The emotional life is much more integrated with the way that I carry this teaching and so on. And I think that's what Ramdas wanted. You know, it's not, it's as a, it's not up, and against his way, it's and it's just the new expression of these teachings. And you have um, what's if I can follow up, Dennis? Um, it's also interesting because um, there would have been people 
uh, younger than Ram Dass, but, perhaps, but older than you, who were with Neem Karoli. Um, and um, at also, what you, you bring uh, a perspective of the world's religions that I don't think even Ram Dass quite had, and he had his psychology background. So it's a kind of interesting mm-hmm. uh, phenomenon. But one of the things I wanted to bring up was I have encountered a great number of people, uh, much younger than you are, my dear, who um, consider themselves devotees or disciples even of, of Neem Karoli Baba, who weren't even born when he passed away. And right. I, that phenomenon is fascinating to me. Are, do you find people of, of that era, people in their maybe their 30s now, who uh, came to consider Neem Karoli their guru, uh, even though they never even came close to knowing him in the flesh? Those are the people I'm talking about who are coming yeah. to, like, that. Re- the Ramdas retreat we just did in Ojai was, was primarily people under 40. Um, people in their 30s and 20s who were deeply devoted to Neem Karoli Baba. It was very beautiful to see that devotional quality, yeah. you know, especially in light of the whole Advaita Vedanta mm-hmm. non-dual movement where where people have been discouraged in some ways, I think, from from devotional practice yeah. because it seems to be dualistic. But right. there's such a longing in the hearts of these young people for that devotional experience. So yes, they're flocking to Neem Karoli Baba. And I think a lot of that has to do, it has to do with Ram Dass for sure, but also with Krishna Das. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, <clears throat> Mayor Bhai, I wanted to ask you that, and that is, uh, somebody's a, a spiritual aspirant, they're young. Uh, is it important, do you think, would you encourage them to be connected to a lineage? Do they need a focal point, a guru who's either living uh, or has left the body and uh, once existed? Do you think that's important uh, for somebody that wants to grow spiritually, uh, or is it uh, uh, not important, or does it just depend upon uh, a, a personal preference amongst the uh, aspirants? Yeah, that's a great question, Dennis. Well, I, well, to back up because this is related to what what <clears throat> Phil said a moment ago about Ramdas's um, knowledge of the world's religions. I have to say that the reason I really embarked on an interspiritual path was because of Ramdas, because mm. he drew very much on all the world's religious traditions and knew a great deal, was deeply mm. educated in both the Western religious traditions and the Eastern ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I just want to clarify that mm-hmm. not only was he, is he <laughs> knowledgeable about the uh, multiple religions, but he's the reason that I became interested. Mm. And Maharaji's main teaching, like I said, he doesn't, he didn't really have teachings, but his, the, a statement that he made again and again was sub-ek. Sub-ek means all is one. And Maharaji also, as many Indians do, as you know, Phil, um, really did draw on all of the world's re- religions and knew about and loved Christ and Mother Mary. And when I met Ram Dass as a teenager, he had an altar, a puja table, with saints and masters from all traditions, mm-hmm. as well as Caspar Weinberger and Richard <laughs> <laughs> But so, yeah, the, the people, the young people that are hungry for a spiritual life, I think you're absolutely right, Dennis, that some of, I think it's a temperamental uh, mm-hmm. situation and where some people really do need 
a root tradition to to root themselves in and a particular guru to identify with. Others like me, even though I feel deeply connected to this lineage, I'm also deeply connected to Sufism and to Judaism and to Christian mysticism. Um, so there are many traditions that feel like home to me, but some people do need one place to to call um, their their sanctuary, and that's where their focus is. I I think that um, in the Neem Kroli Baba lineage, people are encouraged to be more expansive and not not elect one particular portal as the exclusive access point. Mm-hmm. Um, exclusive being the operative word, because uh, there can be many access points, I guess. Um, do you find... Um, um, this sort of uh, rascally, iconoclastic quality that uh, Neem Karoli had um, and is mirrored in people like Ram Dass and other uh, devotees of Neem Karoli. Do you find parallels in the other world traditions? Are you are you drawn to the mystics who are iconoclastic? You, yeah. Uh, are there sort of brothers and sisters of Neem Karoli in the traditions? That's such a wonderful question, Phil. I'd never thought of that that way, like that rascal, iconoclastic, misbehaving um, elements as being connected with the the mystics. And it absolutely is. That's brilliant. Mm. Yeah. I mean, because in fact, I often have felt that the mystics, particularly in the in the Christian tradition, the Roman Catholic tradition of of saints who are mystics. They made them saints because they didn't know what to do with them. They, they, didn't, they didn't fit. They were clearly having God experiences, and though they tried to repress, the church tried to repress them in every way possible. When they couldn't repress them, they canonized them. Because they just were, it couldn't be denied that something was going on. And often these the mystics were re- revered by the people, always, I would say, ah. by, by the people in their communities. And at, over and against what the uh, authority figures of the church felt. And some of them got into trouble. And many of them did, and some of them were executed. They never were canonized. They were executed. It was one or the other. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that that's, you know, not, that's not the case anymore that we're, we're able to, um, as a global culture, we're able to embrace, those on the edges, those who are pushing the edge and showing us new, new regions of consciousness, and and so I think there's a there's a much higher tolerance for the unexpected. Well, and, well, and, yeah. and let, I let, think I stand in that lineage myself. Right. You know, let's I never know what's going to come out of my mouth. Let, <laughs> let's hope we continue to move in that uh, direction and not move in another direction where. Uh, there's less openness. Uh, Mirabai, time always flies when we talk to you. Uh, uh, any final points that you'd like Dennis, to share? Dennis, can I ask one more yeah, question? Yeah, no, go ahead. I have I had this two, in mind, and, I, and let, me, let me get it in. Um, when we last spoke to you, Mirabai, you, your uh, memoir had just come out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and for those who don't know, the memoir deals uh, with... Uh, serious tragedies in your life, especially the death of your, your daughter. 
and and the spiritual lessons learned and the challenges uh, that you had to go through. How has it been now that the book is out and you have uh, events and you've probably given talks about it and you've done uh, book events and, and workshops, what have you learned after the book was written from the responses you've gotten uh, out there having to do with your own experience? Mm. Well, you know, when I spoke to you guys, I was probably feeling really naked. You know, I put that thing out and I was like, oh, my God, what have I done? I, wa I want to take it back. And I couldn't and I had to let go. And none of my fears materialized. I have I have received hundreds and still do um, hundreds of responses of the heart from people who were who were not only touched by the book, but given permission to tell their own truths. Mm. And so that has been deeply gratifying, and I'm and people are starting to write, to actually write their own mem memoirs of transformational losses, and so um, I'm I'm very grateful that the book landed with people in that way, and people are giving it to each other when when terrible losses happen in their lives, which they inevitably will, and mm -hmm. so um, it's it has a life of its own, and all is. All is well. I'm I'm not afraid of having told the truth, and people are emboldened by anyone who stands up and and engages in radical truth telling. This is what I have learned. Well, I, wonderful. As I mentioned in the beginning, I have encountered many people since we interviewed you uh, uh, who are familiar with your name, and virtually all of the people that uh, mentioned that to me uh, have also said how you've inspired them in, in uh, many ways and so all I can say is keep up the good work keep coming back on our show and uh, uh, it's always wonderful and there are uh, dozens and dozens of other areas we'd like to uh, go into with you uh, but any final words you have and any final comments Phil or uh, no I'll leave it for Mirabai oh it's such a joy to talk to you both you're so smart and heart-centered and lovely um, I I guess I would just say that where my energy seems to be most alive right now is in the realm of the feminine voice and how much it is needed, um, especially for women and girls to speak the truth that is in our hearts right now um, in the conversation that's happening globally, but men also who are hungry for the feminine wisdom um, need to reach out for it. It's it's vital. It's the it's the uh, the medicine. I was trying to think of a non medical word, but that we need for these um, these troubled times. Wonderful. Uh, a good way to end. Thanks again, Mirabai. We'll be in touch, and uh, everybody um, look at Mirabai's website. See where her events are. See about her books. And uh, you have a lot to learn from her. Mm, thank you, my dear. Okay. Take care, guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye.